open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4. And tonight we'll consider verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. These verses read this way. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We've said many, many times that the, the Paul's letter to the Ephesians is generally divided into two parts, a theology part or a doctrine part and an application part. And this is not unique with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Most of Paul's letters are divided up in this way. In this particular letter, chapters 1 through 3 are heavy in theology, and chapters 4 through 6 are heavy in application of that theology, although we, we readily recognize that there is application in the first three chapters and there's theology in the second three chapters. The application section, beginning in chapter 4, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians begins with a call to humility, gentleness, and patience that will function in an atmosphere of love with a diligent pursuit of spirit-led peace. With a call to humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility, gentleness, and patience. So it will function in an atmosphere of love and with a diligent pursuit of spirit-led peace. This is significant in that, as we've observed over almost 11 months now that we've been in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the overriding theme of this letter is an encouragement to unity within the body of Christ. It bears repeating occasionally that there are two different ways of that the, the New Testament utilizes the term ecclesia or church. We're talking about unity within the body of Christ or unity within the church. Let's, let's remind ourselves just briefly of the two ways that that's used. There's church with a capital C, and that's the body of Christ. That's the church universal. It's also called, if you, if you understand the meaning of the word, it's also called the Catholic church. Now, it's not, now, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church in terms of general, the, the, the universal church. Um, so sometimes when you, talk, when you hear about the Catholic epistles, it's not talking about epistles that were written just to the Roman Catholic Church. It's talking about epistles that were written to all the churches. So you have the church universal, and the church universal is made up of every individual from the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one. The, the the universal church is a result of the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes place at the moment one places their faith in Christ. The universal church. There's also another way that, that the term church is used, and that's for the local church. Now, again, this is generally speaking, but remember when we studied the pastoral epistles, we said the pastoral epistles were primarily directed toward the local church, or function, rather, within a local church. Although there's some universal church things there, to be sure. Now, the letter to the Ephesians is primarily referencing the universal church, but the things that apply to the universal church also will apply to a local church as well. Now, if you're in the universal church, the church with a capital C, let's say, if you're in the universal church, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you wouldn't be there. By definition, by definition, everybody in the church universal, in the body of Christ, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least has been at one time in their life. But unfortunately, not, not necessarily everybody that is a member of a local church is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would like for it to be that way. We ask you that when you, when you, uh, 
want to join the least pine valley that's one of the three questions that is asked of you but sometimes people would may lie they may lie about that or they may have a i don't know what they can do besides lie but, but they may be confused about it perhaps and somebody may may sneak in in that way in terms of membership so while we try to keep people who are members of the local church we we try to restrict that to people who are believers not necessarily the case but by definition Everyone who's a believer is in the universal church. Okay? Now, it's, Paul's letter is speaking primarily about unity in the body of Christ. Not just necessarily unity within any particular local church, although that's, that is a reality as well. If there's unity within the, the body in a larger way, there's going to be unity in the specific local church. But it's not just speaking about unity within, say, like Pine Valley Bible Church or First Baptist Church or Second Baptist Church. It's bigger than that. And see, because it's bigger than that, it's more challenging. Because what Paul is calling for here is a unity, not just with people within our own local church, but people in our own local church being in, in having functioning in unity with, guess what, people that go to other local churches. And that means that if someone is going to another local church, it doesn't necessarily mean they're the enemy. Okay? And we need to be very, very careful about that because sometimes they're good. There gets to be this competition between local churches that's so intense that if we hear somebody's going to this one or that one or the other one, all of a sudden they somehow become a heretic or they become the enemy or we don't want to talk to them. And Paul says, no, that's not the way this is supposed to function. So we need to be very, very careful with this. If, they're, if they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, if they have trusted him to forgive them from the penalty of sin and to grant them eternal life, they are my brother and they are my sister. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean or doesn't mean that each local church is going to have complete agreement on everything, for example, for doctrinal issues or philosophy of ministry issues. There, frankly, are some local churches that the way they practice ministry irks me. It irks me that someone in a very, very, that, that, that ministers in a $20 million building feels the need to come out without, without shoes on. And in, in jeans and a t-shirt to preach on Sunday morning. Now, if it's an evangelistic setting, that's totally different. It really is. If it's a totally evangelistic setting, you come out and you meet people exactly where they are. And if that's, if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. But if we meet believers barefooted and in jeans and in t-shirts in our culture, that irks me. Because that's not our culture. And that's not honoring, in my view, I'm sorry, but in my view, that's not honoring to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that you have to wear a coat and tie to church on Sunday morning. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you at least need to put some thought into it. You know? And, if, and if, you have, if you have shoes, it might be nice to wear them in our culture. Now, in other cultures, in other cultures on Sunday morning, you'd actually be insulting them if you wore sho shoes into the building. Uh, when I taught in a church in India recently... I, I took my shoes off because everybody else had their shoes. I, I preached in my stocking feet, but it wasn't, and I had a suit on, my suit and stocking feet. It was kind of odd looking. I did a wedding one time in my suit and barefooted out on the beach because that's what people wanted. I didn't want to take my shoes off, but they insisted. I thought it degraded the office, but that was just, that's just me. So anyway, there are going to be differences. There's going to be differences in, in doctrinal statements. There's going to be differences in philosophy of ministry. But that fellow, who I won't say his name, but that fellow who preaches with blue jeans and no shoes and a t-shirt, he's still my brother in Christ. So while it may irk me, I need to get over it. 
You see, because that's not going to happen here, but I need to get over that. Because he is my brother in Christ, and Paul says, speaking for the Holy Spirit, that it's going to grieve the Spirit. It's going to grieve the Spirit if we don't function in unity. So I don't want to be a part of that. Okay? I hope you see, this doesn't mean we compromise doctrinally. Because Jesus himself is the one that said, prayed to the Heavenly Father that we would be one as he is one, that we would be sanctified in the truth. Not that we would just be set apart, but we would have unity, according to John 17, within the sphere of the truth. So it's a, it's a tough thing. It's not easy at all. But this call to unity is an important thing. Now tonight, tonight we are presented with seven propositions to consider. Seven, seven elements of unity, or can I use the term commonality, that unite believers in the church universal. Not necessarily in a local church, although we would hope that it would be this way, but certainly in the church universal. Now, these seven flow like this. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And Paul's going to outline these, and these are all elements of unity or commonality that will unite believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, my pastoral colleague that preaches with no shoes on and blue jeans in a T-shirt in a $20 million building, which the reason I bring that up is because it's not like he can't afford to buy shoes. Now, if you can't afford to buy shoes, that's totally different. Totally different. Or if you're in a, in a culture where it's, it's impolite to wear shoes indoors, that's totally different. But that's not the case here. But the point is, this brother that preached on the other side of town and myself share the same body of Christ. We share the same spirit. We share the same hope. We share the same Lord, the same, the same faith, the same baptism, and the same Heavenly Father. You see, these are elements of commonality that we have. And this is one of the things we need to be very careful with when we, try to, when we start to get in conflict with other members of the body of Christ. Again, I'm not saying we have to endorse every technique that another church uses. And I certainly don't endorse some of the doctrine of other churches. But, but there, are, there are times when I have to still stand by that person and say, you are my brother. This is easier done on the mission field, I think, than anywhere else. You get on the mission field when, when say, like a country, well, some of the countries in the M Middle East, for example, that are, are, are Central Asia, that, that are 97% non-Christian, you don't get real picky about who the person up on the stage is with you, whether they're Pentecostal or whether they're Methodist. And I'm not going to minister with them. They're Methodist. I'm not going to do that. Of course not. If they're my brother in Christ and we stand together, and that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to agree on everything. And if we're going to speak in the same venue, we're very careful that, at least if I'm in charge of the venue, about what gets said. But they are my brother. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that there is some disagreement about the specific reference to at least two of these categories, and you probably can figure out what they are. But while there is disagreement, and I'm going to tell you what they are. Sometimes I don't do that because I, it, it's not that productive necessarily. But tonight I'm going to because some of your study Bibles may say something different, and I just want to let you know why I came to the conclusions that I came to. But while there may be disagreements about a couple of these as to what the specific reference is, there is a consensus as to what the message is in these four verses. You see what I mean? There may, be a, there may be some disagreement about the specifics of a couple of these, but there's consensus as to what Paul is doing here. And this is what he's doing. This is what he's saying. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a strong bond of commonality. 
And that strong bond of commonality unites us. And while Christians come in all shapes and sizes and colors and personalities, we have been given the responsibility by our Savior, by our common Lord, to function in unity. And not this postmodern kind of unity that comes at the expense of truth, but unity within the sphere of truth. Now, let's briefly, in the time that we have tonight, examine each of these seven elements of unity or seven elements of commonality. The first is the one body. Now, this is something that's not going to take a lot of time because we've been talking about this since, the, since we began Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, almost a year ago. The one body here, of course, is the church. Now, as we talked about a minute ago, the two ways that the, this is used, this is not local church, little c. This is church with a big C. The universal body of believers in the present age. Now, this is not talking about Old Testament saints. And it won't be talking about tribulational saints or millennial saints. This is church age saints. And this metaphor, the metaphor of the body, has already been used in the epistle. We studied it in chapter 1, verse 23, chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 6. We are all part of a common corporate structure. And it's not that Gentiles become Jews or Jews become Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles both become believers in the Lord Jesus. We both become Christians. Now, there's this idea of a corporate identity that some of you may recognize, perhaps from something as simple as, as identity with a particular college. Now, let's say you went to A&M or Baylor or Oklahoma or Sam Houston or, or any of the other colleges that are around here. I mean, there are too many too numerous to mention, Rice or U of H, Baylor. And let's say while you're at Baylor, for example, you may go to class with people. You may, not, you may like them. You may not like them. You may actually get into arguments on that campus itself. But there still is a certain camaraderie, especially at a place like Texas A&M. You know, you know that other schools come to Texas A&M to study what happens at Texas A&M in, in terms of the unity there? Because while people, for example, at Texas A&M may argue and fuss and fight, fight with people while they're at Texas A&M, if you're out somewhere, and I'm not an Aggie, I mean, I have two, and two children that are and a brother that is and a niece that is, but I, I'm not. So I think I can say this as someone that from the outside looking in. If, when I'm walking somewhere with my brother and people see his Aggie ring, they, they may be in Atlanta or Chicago or Seattle or, or Houston or, or New York City. They say, hey, you're an Aggie. What year did you graduate? Well, I graduated this year. Well, what, what was your degree? Oh, man, did you remember such and such? Wasn't it neat that we did this? There's a commonality there based upon where they went to school. And even though within that fraternity, if you will, or even though within that corporate structure of a university, there may be some disagreements Within that, if you take that setting outside of the, of the, um, if you take it to the outside, there's a there's a common bond that takes place there that is unique and special. I was in Switzerland one time. Actually, I've been in Switzerland s several times, but I was in Switzerland one time, sitting at a, a restaurant that was overlooking this incredible valley, and we were Cindy and I were eating breakfast. The, they were cutting the grass outside. The windows were open because it was nice and cool. They were cutting the grass outside with by hand. This, this fellow was, the whole side of the hill, he was cutting it by hand so it smelled like fresh cut grass. We were drinking real hot chocolate made with Swiss chocolate and real milk and it was just an incredible morning and I heard the people sitting a couple tables down speaking English. And so naturally we kind of struck up a conversation because there was one bond of commonality right there. Both of us spoke English. I could tell they weren't from Australia 
or New Zealand or England. I could tell they were speaking American English, and it sounded like something that I understood pretty well. Finally, I came around to, where are you from? Well, I'm from Texas. Well, me too. Where are you from? Well, I'm from Dallas. Well, I'm from Houston. But just the fact that we were both from Texas gave us, gave us this bond of commonality. Never seen him before, never see him again. If, he, if, they, if we saw him in, if I did see him in Texas and he's running down the road, he'd probably be one of those guys that try to cut in front of you or something. Well, you may bust at him. I don't know. But the fact that we were both Texans in another place, there was a certain bond of unity there. Now, listen, if that's true with colleges, and if it's true with states or with cities or with countries, there's a certain bond there with countries, isn't there? Then isn't it more true? Isn't it exponentially true within the body of Christ? And I'd say, you betcha it's true. You haven't really... I'll listen, well, let me back up. I wouldn't put it that way, but I'm saying... One of the greatest experiences of my life has been to be in another country and to hear hymns sung that I recognize the tune to in another language. Because you, you recognize right then, these are my brothers, these are my sisters. Even though I may not even speak the same language, there's a bond that's bigger than language. There's a bond that's bigger than skin color. There's a bond that's bigger than gender. There's a bond that's bigger than socioeconomic status. And that's the bond that we share as members of the bodies, body of Christ. So that's the first one, one body. Now the second one is one spirit. This, of course, refers to the Holy Spirit. We're all brought into the body of Christ by means of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's one of these things that we all share in common. And it's also, we've already been told, it's by means of this same spirit that we all have access to the Heavenly Father. So the same Holy Spirit that indwells me indwells you. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt John Calvin and allowed him to write his incredible commentary so long ago indwells the seminary professors of today, and guess what? You too. It's the same Holy Spirit. Just like we said on Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago, it's the same Lord that appeared to Abraham that takes care of you. That, that's, that was striking to me. When we, when we finally sit down and realize that same Lord that is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in this week's lesson, is the same Lord that will, that will protect the United States of America, or at least those who are the righteous remnant in the United States of America. So one body, that's the body of Christ or the church universal, one spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit. One hope, the way that Paul puts it is, there's one body, one spirit, just as also you will call into one hope, uh, into one hope of your calling. We share, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we share a common hope. Or, better put, a, com a common confident expectation of the future. A common expectation, a confident expectation of the future because of our calling in the past. I hope you, I hope you see the beauty of that. We all share, everybody in this room, because I know every one of you in this room, and I know that you're believers in the Lord Jesus, we all share a common destiny... We share a common future because we have a common call that took place in the past. We share a common future because of something that happened in the past for each and every one of us. Now, this has incredible and serious ramifications as to personal interaction in the here and now. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this has serious ramifications for the here and now. Because, and I'll just, I will, this won't be testimony time, but I'll, I'll give my own. There are times when I'm tempted, perhaps, 
to treat other people maybe less kindly than I ought to treat them. I know that shocks you, but I'm sure you're the same way from time to time as well. So all of us are in this position. And I'm going to tell you one thing that's really helped me personally is to sit back and realize that, you know what, I'm going to spend eternity with that gal or that fellow. And it's not, it's not like we can just run away. In big cities, it's harder to be kind and courtesy, courtesy, have courtesy to people sometimes because we don't think we're ever going to see them again. That's why I think people are much more courteous in small towns. Where I grew up in Casper, Wyoming, if you, if you had an altercation at the Albertsons, you're liable to be sitting next to that person at the high school football game just a little while from then. Or they might be your next-door neighbor. The first person that ever gave me a ticket, a highway patrolman, lived two doors down from us. I wasn't going to <laughs> May as well be nice to that fellow because the, my parents knew I got the ticket before I ever got home because he lived right down the street from us. And there's something to be said for that. But in big cities, sometimes we think well, we're never going to see that person again. Heck with them. We're never going to see them again. And if we're having a bad day, we want to pass that ba bad day along to them. And who cares? Well, guess what? If they're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you think you're not going to see him again on earth. You're going to see him again in heaven forever because you share a common destiny with them. So maybe it's just something, at least it causes me to think twice before I uh, want somebody to share my bad day. I'm less inclined to treat them harshly. One body, one spirit, one hope. We have a common destiny because in the future because of something that's happened in the past. One body, one spirit, one hope. Oh, and then this one. This, should, this really should go without saying, but it's germane to Paul's argument here, and that is one Lord. That's, it's also right in the middle of the list. I don't know if Paul planned it that way, but it's really important. We share the same Lord. Can I put it a different way? We share the same boss. The same Lord that's telling me to function in unity is also telling you to function in unity. We share the same Lord. In the previous verse, it was this, the third person of the Trinity that was discussed, the Holy Spirit. Now we have the second person discussed. It's interesting to me, and I don't know if, if we need to make too much out of this, but at least we need to observe it. It's interesting to me that, that here Paul uses a title for Christ, and his title indicating his sovereignty. He didn't say we share the same Jesus, although he could have said that, and it would have been very effective, I'm sure, but we share the same Lord. Perhaps the intention was to let us know that the call to unity is not a suggestion, but it's an order that was given to each of us by our common master. At least in today's culture. I understand it wasn't this way so much in the past. But in today's culture, parents typically take care of their own children, and they don't care so much for somebody else fussing at their kids. At least I've seen that. Now, I'm told in the past, and, and I experienced just a little bit of it, but I'm told in the past, and in the past, it didn't matter who, who you were. If you did something wrong out playing, any, any parent could say, hey, stop that. Now, today it's not so much that way. We, we have our own masters, if you will, our own parents, and they're the ones that, that are, are authorized to say something to us. And sometimes kids even get a little lippy and say, you're not my mom, you're not my dad, you can't tell me what to do. Well, you know what? You can't do that with the Lord because we all share the same one. And the Lord himself is our boss. There's a commonality there, and that's one of the things that should be uh, motivating us toward unity. One body, one spirit, 
one Lord. I'm sorry, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. Now, in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, this is one, when we get to the one faith, this is one of the two elements where there is some disagreement as to the specific reference. And I want to give you both options and tell you why I would, would, would lean toward one of them. But either one is, regardless of which of them that you take, it doesn't change Paul's meaning here, this call and encouragement to unity based upon commonality. This, this phrase, one faith, could legitimately refer to the body of truth that is believed by Christians, also known in some circles as doctrine or a body of theology. You, you, um, you hear that. that. That is one of the uses, rather, of the word pistis or faith in the New Testament, a body of truth, the faith. Are you, are you in the faith? Are you, cons are you living consistently with the, the body of truth. And it, it could legitimately refer to that, or it could reference the faith that is exercised by all Christians as they receive the free gift of eternal life. Those are, those are the two ways that that term is used. The faith that I express in the Lord Jesus in order to be saved, or the faith that makes up the body of information. Um, both are certainly possibilities. But in my view, the scales tip in favor of referencing the faith that is exercised by all in reception of eternal life for two reasons. It's the more common of the usages, usages in the New Testament, and Paul has already spent a significant amount of time, particularly in chapter 2, laying the groundwork for the fact that we all came into the body of Christ the same way, by grace through faith. You remember the key verses there, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, that no man should boast. So one of the key points in chapter 2 was we all got into the body of Christ in the same way. So who am I to put you down when we both got there by grace through faith? Nobody earned their way into it. We're both there by grace through faith. Now, it's certainly true. And, and if your study Bible says this, it's, it's not a heresy in any way, but it's certainly true that we share a common body of doctrine or a common body of truth. And our Lord emphasizes this in John chapter 17. I've already referenced that tonight. Set, it, set them apart in the truth. But the better understanding here, in my view, is that this refers to what sometimes New Testament people call ob the objective use of this word faith, meaning that the trust that all of us have placed in Jesus Christ. So one Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith, that is a common, a, something that all of us have exercised in common. There's not a person that's in the body of Christ that hasn't had to, at some point in time, at some instant in time, told the Heavenly Father, Father, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I have, and I assume you have too. Maybe a long time ago, maybe recently, but every single one of us is in the same boat. Every single one of us had to humble ourselves and to, to become part of the body of Christ the same way. That's one of the things that we share together, and it should be something that motivates us to unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, you might have guessed, this is the second of the two elements over which there is some disagreement, and probably more here than any of the other elements. Most, most expositors, at least most expositors that write commentaries, 
hold that this is a reference to water baptism. And that's certainly possible. But there's nothing in the immediate context that points us in that direction. Others, noting that, believe that it refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit that places us into union with Christ and into the body of Christ. And frankly, in the context in which Paul is speaking, that makes more sense, as this is something that we all have in common and is central to the idea of unity. We've talked about it before in our study. But this phrase, one baptism, comes in a section that is devoted not to the Holy Spirit, but to the Lord. See, the Holy Spirit was the first referenced. Now we're in a section that is devoted to the Lord. So we may be inching closer, I think, to what this actually means. But we might not have quite gotten there yet. This has led to a third possibility, and that is, that is understanding that the term baptism, or the verb to baptize, has to do with an identification, to be identified with someone, or to be identified with something. You, you remember when, when the, the Jews were saved from the advancing Egyptian army, they were saved by what the Old Testament calls the baptism of Moses. They were saved by identification with Moses. Now, that's one of those dry baptisms. Uh, the Egyptians got wet, and the Jews stayed dry but by virtue of their identification. But baptism of the Holy Spirit is a, is a dry uh, baptism. But there's also another baptism that this might be referencing. At least I think there's a better shot at it, and that's the baptism that's mentioned in Romans 6. Romans 6 makes it clear that when we trust Jesus Christ to rescue us, from the eternal penalty of sin and to grant us eternal life, we are identified with him in his death. We are baptized into his death. Romans 6, 1 through 3 reads this way, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Oh, absolutely not, Paul says. Meganoito. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Harold Honer summarized verse 5 very well, I think, when he said, There's a unity in the one Lord in whom the believers have placed their one faith expressed in one baptism signifying their identification in his death and resurrection. I, I would hold to the third view. In fact, I, I would uh, give Harold Honer credit for that. Um, I think he's right. When he, when he says in the, in the first, the idea of it being water baptism, not just Honer, but others reject that. Some, some hold to it. But it's, it's really hard to see that water baptism has been a source of unity in the whole history of the church. In fact, it has been anything but that, especially in the Reformation period. I never forget Martin Luther when they asked him what he thought about the Anabaptists and about baptizing people as adults. And a good old Martin, who was real good in some areas but needed a whooping in some other areas, he said, yeah, feel free to baptize them. Tie them up in a ball of rope and throw them in the river. 
That's how you need to baptize. So it's been it's hardly been a source of um, it's hardly been a source of unity. Uh, now that he's with the Lord, I can say this. John Wolver told us one time in a, in a very small class that we had. He said, "Listen, I hate to tell you guys, but uh, I believe in sprinkling." And he said, "You know, we all kind of looked." And he said, "The reason I don't tell anybody that is because I speak to a lot of Baptist churches." And he said, "I'm not going to I'm not going to bring that up at a Baptist church. They wouldn't even have me come there." But he, he recognized the possibility for disunity with regard to that one thing. The mode of baptism has been a, a great source of disunity. But the main point is that it's not really, it doesn't seem to be what is referenced here, at least not ritual. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think, comes closer. But since it's in the section with that's referencing Jesus Christ, probably better understood as the baptism that Christians have into the death of Christ. So one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and finally, one God. We are all children of God in the sense of creation, but we're only children of God in the sense of salvation if we are in the body of Christ by means of grace through faith. Verse 6 reads this way, One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Now, some who like to pick and choose verses out of the Bible, and it's interesting to me how so many non-Christians don't mind going to the Bible at all if they get to pick and choose things out of it. Now, this is one of those verses people like to pick and choose, that, that, that the God of the universe is the God of all, and we're all God's children. We're all God's children. Well, we all are God's children on, in the sense of creation, but not in the sense of salvation. We're only God's children in the sense of salvation if we have shared this common faith, if we have the common Lord, if we're part of that same body. Those are the ones that are being referenced here. This is not, a, this is not the universal fatherhood of God in the sense of all people come one, come all. That's not, the, that's not what this is talking about. It's not a statement about the universal brotherhood of man, but it's a statement about the universal brotherhood or sisterhood, if you prefer, of believers. Again, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, if you're in the body of Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister, whether you like it or not, or whether I may like it or not. We need to get over that. God is our Father, and He's the perfect Father. Now, I'll tell you what, one of the things that I think is, is inexcusable is for a human father to be abusive or neglectful of his children. Because biblically, this, this figure is used of father that can be extremely distorted when people have had human fathers that weren't necessarily the best folks. Many have had human fathers that abandoned them. But our Heavenly Father says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Many people have had human fathers that abused them. But our Heavenly Father would never abuse His children. Our Heavenly Father loves us so deeply that He sent His Son to die on our behalf. So we don't want to mix this up, but we, have, we all share the same perfect Father. So we can't superimpose our view of fatherhood on our Heavenly Father. We come away with a skewed view of God. And I think that's one of the reasons, my own personal opinion, why Satan goes after the family so hard. Because if he can, if he can cause fathers to abandon their families or to abuse the family or to neglect the family, 
And I know many of you in this room are in that situation, and I really feel for you. I wasn't, but I know some of you were, and I really feel for you. But it makes it more difficult to have the appropriate view of God as an adult. Now, you can do it. The Holy Spirit can transform your thinking, and you can come up with the appropriate view of God. It just makes it more difficult. Now, God, we worship a perfect father. I will tell you up front, I'm a father. Most of you are aware of that. My fatherhood is flawed, even though I love my children dearly. I could say with complete honesty, though, complete honesty that I would gladly give my life for my children. And I'm sure you would do the same thing. But in spite of our good intentions, we are fallen human beings. And as such, we all have flaws in whatever it is we attempt to accomplish, whether it's motherhood or fatherhood or just being a friend. None of us are going to be the perfect anything. None of us are going to be the perfect teacher, the perfect engineer. None of us are going to be perfect in anything because we're flawed human beings. And that includes fatherhood or motherhood. It includes husband and wife. And we need to remember that, by the way. This is, my, uh, this is slightly off the subject, but I'll, I'll just say it quickly. We, we need to be aware that our spouses aren't perfect. And guess what? You need to look in the mirror and make sure you realize you're not perfect either. Because, like Francis Schaeffer said, many, many good Christian marriages are blown apart because there's a, there, is a, there are unrealistic expectations on the part of the husband or the wife. And they wake up one day and they realize that their spouse is not perfect. And they forget that they're not either. And they expect something of someone else that they can't deliver. Your wife or your husband cannot deliver perfection. And you can't deliver perfection to them. So now that we've got that settled, now let's see if we can live with one another. Same way with friendships. Same way with church members. But there is one that's perfect, and that's the Heavenly Father. He is perfect. Our perfection awaits heaven. He's already there. And it has always been perfect. And furthermore... The text tells us he's sovereign and transcendent. That's what it means by he's over all. But he's also imminent, meaning that he, although he's transcendent, meaning transcendence means he exists outside of his creation. Sovereignty means he is he's head over all. He exercises authority over all. But he's also imminent, which means that although he's transcendent, he also interacts with his creation, particularly in the lives of believers. That's what it means by through all. And he's in all, signifying his indwelling presence in every single one of us. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, here are the seven elements of unity that have been given tonight for our consideration. One body, one spirit. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we have a strong bond of commonality that unites us. And while Christians come in all sizes and colors and personalities, we've been given the responsibility by our Savior, to function in unity.